0: Welcome to the POV Hamilton podcast, where we're talking to innovators, educators, leaders, and builders across the Steel City. We have the most diversified economy in Canada, and there are hundreds of stories waiting to be told of the people, the companies, and the organizations making it happen. Here's whose point of view you'll be listening to today. I'm Dr. Laurel Trainer, and I'm a professor of psychology, neuroscience, and behavior at McMaster University, and I also direct the Live Lab. Um, I'm a scientist, I study many aspects of musical behavior, how music's processed in the brain, from how infants perceive music to how they learn culture-specific musical genres, to how music's important in social interactions and in mental health. Well, the Live Lab is a unique facility. It's a concert hall, a fully functioning concert hall, but it's a research lab at the same time. So it contains equipment in you know, with which we can measure physiology. So we can measure brain waves with EEG. Um, we can measure heart rate, heart rate variability. We can measure little sweating responses uh, that, that, uh, from people's skin uh, that happen when you feel an emotion or arousal. And so we can measure all of these things in all of the musicians on the stage, as well as in the whole audience. Uh, we also have motion capture. Uh, So we can put little markers on, on people, on their heads or on their limbs, and we can measure in real time how they're moving. And this also gives us a lot of information about how they're experiencing the music or whatever performance we're showing them. And so, I mean, I would say, you know, most research on music perception and cognition really involves presenting an individual in a small sterile lab with some sounds and, you know, seeing what they can discriminate and what they like and, you know, and how their brain is processing those sounds. But in the real world, when you look across all the different cultures in the world, music is usually experienced in a communal setting. So we make music with other people. And most often we listen to music with other people. And, you know, it's really only since we developed technologies to record music that people have begun to listen to music alone uh, you know for any substantial period I mean other than just singing by yourself (laughs) in a field somewhere so we wanted to study music the way it's typically experienced and that really meant looking at how people experience music together how we make music how performers perform together how audiences respond to the music and so on and so really that meant we had to create a space in which we could do that, that had, you know, a real concert setting, uh, but at the same time had all the equipment that we needed to to study it scientifically. The lab opened in 2015, um, and we've done a lot of research since then. Uh, Many different groups have come in from around the world to do research. So I can tell you about a few of the studies that we've done. In one series of studies, we've been interested in how musicians synchronize with each other, you know, particularly in small ensembles when they don't have a conductor. So if you play music, you know that sometimes you speed up, sometimes you slow down. Uh, You know, you have to phrase things, you decide to play some parts louder or softer, um, and you're trying to express different emotions at different points. And so when there's a group of musicians that are trying to do this together, they somehow have to coordinate all of that. And so it turns out it's not an easy thing to do at all. I mean, just within yourself as a musician, if you're playing, uh, you have to be predicting what you're going to play next all the time, because it takes your brain a little bit of time to plan the motor movements you're going to need to make to execute that. So you're continually predicting or thinking subconsciously for the most part about what you're going to play next. Um, So... If you think about playing with other people, now it becomes much more complex because you not only have to plan what you're going to do next, but you have to plan what everybody else, what you think everybody else is going to do next so that you're with them. Because if you wait to hear what they do, then it's too late, you won't be with them. So we wanted to know how this is accomplished. And so in the series of studies, we looked at body sway. Now, it's interesting that musicians will sway their body, they'll move, you know, sort of back and forth like this when they're playing there's no need to do that to play your instrument. So it's not really about playing your instrument. We think it's like how people gesture with their hands when they talk. And in fact, if you prevent people from gesturing with their hands when they talk, their speech becomes less fluent. So the gesturing is you know, coming from the motor system, but it's helping us to plan what we're gonna say next. And similarly, we think Body Sway is accomplishing this in a musical setting. So we used our motion capture system and we measured the body sway of each of the musicians uh, in, say, a string quartet. And we examined how the body sway of one musician could influence the body sway of another musician. And so we found that, in fact, the way one musician would move at a particular point in time, actually, from that, we could predict how another musician was going to move in the next little bit of time. So it was really communicative. And we could play around with it. We could say, okay, you're the leader on this on this piece. And then that would change the dynamics of how much each musician was influencing each other musician. So this has given us sort of a new tool to look at how people interact in complex settings. And we're actually really excited about it as a measure, like in addition to what it's telling us about musicians, um, because we've now applied it to speed dating, for example. So when people are interacting on a short speed date, we found that we could tell uh, from how communicative their body sways were, whether they were gonna actually want to meet each other again after the the event. Uh, And so we think it has potential to look at say other nonverbal populations, like people with dementia or um, uh, low functioning autism where we don't have good measures of when are we getting through to them? When are they understanding us? And this is a way that we could, we could tell, okay, this person, we can tell that they're, we're getting through to them because what we're saying or doing is actually influencing what they're doing next. So so I'm very excited about that. Um, I can tell you about another uh, study that is is still ongoing, uh, but we have some, some interesting results. And this is, proactive music therapy so and and it's focused at university students so it's become really clear during the pandemic although we started this study before the pandemic that the uh, university students are often under a lot of stress they experience a lot of anxiety and uh, on university campuses there just isn't at least in Canada there isn't enough support uh, for them Uh, so Often, you know, they have to reach sort of crisis situation before they can get in to see someone. So we thought music is used around the world. People use it in health. They use it to, I'm sure many of the the people listening to this, use music to help them regulate their emotions. You know, to if you're feeling terrible, there's a certain piece of music that can make you feel better. So we wanted to use music in this way uh, with university students. So we held uh, group music therapy classes that students could sign up for, and then we went online during the pandemic. Um, and we measured, so before and after you know, questionnaires about the, the effects of the, the therapy. But we also have been measuring cortisol levels from hair samples, so during the pandemic, people can send in hair samples from home to us to analyze, uh, and we can take heart rate on their phone. So we can measure physiological responses as well. And, and the, the study is still ongoing, but the, to date, it looks very much like um, these physiological measures are showing uh, positive effects of participating in the, in the music therapy. So we're hoping that this model could become sort of normal uh, across university campuses in Canada, and that it would give students just another tool that they can use for their mental health and controlling stress and anxiety. We know that music is universal across all cultures, all human cultures, past and present. And so being musical is really just part of being human. Uh, And for many decades, centuries, scientists really didn't consider music that important. It was sort of considering, entertainment, perhaps uh, it's nice to have. Um, But the fact that it's universal, suggests that it's probably serving more important functions than just, you know, a bit of entertainment. So it turns out that music has the power to bond us socially and emotionally. So if you think about it, we have music at virtually every type of event where we want to feel close to other people. So we sing lullabies to babies. Uh, We have music at weddings, we have music at funerals and at parties. And so we've now shown scientifically, that when people engage in music together, and particularly when they move together to music, afterwards, they feel bonded. And they'll actually if you give them like a game to play in which they can either cooperate or um, compete, they'll cooperate more. So music has these incredible effects on us. And I think we, we really haven't harness those as fully as we could. Uh, so we're just starting to understand how we can use music and mental health. Um, music uh, can help people with depression and anxiety. It can provide like a nonverbal forum into which they can express some of the feelings that they're having. Beyond that, the rhythms of music are just really powerful. So for example, all of the major developmental disorders, so that would include dyslexia, autism, attention deficits, uh, stuttering, and so on, developmental coordination disorder, all of these developmental disorders have at their core a deficit in timing and rhythm perception. And so we now know that this is just really critical for how the brain works, so understanding rhythms, Uh, being able to perceive them, organizing incoming sensory information, whether it's auditory or visual or tactile. We need these rhythms and this time perception in order to do all of that. And if there are deficits in that, it can have pretty serious consequences. And so now we we know that we can use rhythms and rhythmic training and music to treat many of these, to ameliorate many of the symptoms of, of these developmental disorders. And then another thing we've discovered, uh, we meaning not just us at McMaster, but researchers around the world, is that music is intimately connected with the motor system. So when you listen to music, it not only activates your auditory areas of your brain, but it activates motor areas of your brain that have to do with planning motor movements. And this is why when you listen to music with a beat, it tends to make you want to move. Well, it turns out that because of that connection, we can use rhythms uh, to help people with motor disorders such as Parkinson's disease. So in Parkinson's disease, the major issue becomes initiating movements. But if we actually give auditory cues, auditory rhythmic cues that can stimulate the motor system and allow them to initiate those movements, then you can get really in some patients very dramatic changes from when you have the music on to when you have the music off and how fluent their movements are. So, you know, across many different realms, uh, it turns out that music is just very important. In my youth, I was interested both in music and in science and I, I had a very difficult time deciding if I wanted to be a musician or a scientist. Um, So in fact, I did pursue a degree in in music, a bachelor of music performance, but I really missed the science. And so I was also at the same time, uh, that was back in the day when AI was becoming really big. And um, so I was taking computer science courses and sort of interested in artificial brains as well as human brains. And then I finally realized I could actually combine my interests. And, And so I did a degree in psychology uh, and became a neuroscientist uh, where I actually can study music. Um, but I think it's quite interesting to think that until you know, the last decade or two, music, musical behavior was largely ignored as a topic for psychology and neuroscience. So there's lots of research on memory and cognition and language and all sorts of interesting human behaviors, but almost nothing on music. And so, because music was so important to me, <laughs> seems to be so important to other people, I really wanted to look at why we have music, what is it doing, uh, why is it universal? And so through you know, my early work and, and that of some, some other pioneers really in this, this field, we, we came to show that there are really good reasons why we have music. So music and dance are really intimately connected. So music makes us want to move to the beat. And we know this is true because there are, you know, from a neuroscience perspective, now we know that uh, there are connections between auditory areas of the brain and motor planning areas for movement. So when we listen to music, it makes us want to dance and we synchronize our movements to the music. Uh, so in addition to music, we're very interested in getting into uh, more work on dance and movement. Uh, and so we've actually just collected data in a study where we've examined the effects of different music on how well dancers synchronize with each other. So the idea here is um, we had two dancers, uh, Danza, five minute choreography under different conditions. So in one condition, there was no music, so they just had to synchronize with each other. In another condition, we had music, but it was quite sparse. There weren't a lot of notes there. Um, And then in the other music condition, uh, it used the same material, same harmonic structure, basic um, building blocks, but the music was much more dense. So it was filled in, a lot more notes were filled in. Um, and we wanted to see how these different kinds of music would affect how well the dancers dance together. So I should actually say that the music was composed by my very talented graduate student, Emily Wood, uh, who's like many of the people who work in the live lab, not only a scientist, but also a, a musician. Yeah, so we used motion capture. We put uh, reflective markers on the bodies, Very, you know, the head, the the torso the and the arms and legs of the dancers. Um, and then you know the many cameras in our motion capture system emit infrared light. So you can't see the light, but it bounces off these reflective markers. And from that information we can make three-dimensional um, models of all the intricacies of how the dancers were moving. And, and so really we're interested in how the dancers adapt to each other. Um, so they, they learned the choreography separately in the pandemic, each at their own place. It was composed by Henry Daniel um, at Simon Fraser University, uh, who's a wonderful choreographer. And then we brought them into the live lab. And the first thing we did is have them dance separately just by themselves. And then we had them dance it together. And so one of the things that we're now interested in looking at is how did they have to change what they each were individually doing in order to coordinate together. Uh, So how how do they adapt? And then the other big question is how does the music affect them? And we are hypothesizing that the more dense the music, the more information there is in the music about timing, the better they're gonna be able to dance together because it's gonna help them. It's gonna give them a boost in uh, coordinating uh, with each other. So we're very excited about this. It's our first big foray into um, a dance study, and how music and dance uh, go together. Um, Yeah, so we'll see what the results are. Uh, If you want to hear a preliminary discussion about it, at our upcoming conference, we have an annual Neuromusic conference is this Saturday, November twentieth, And in the evening, we have sort of Public oriented lecture, and Justin London, Dr. Justin London, is going to give it this year, and he's going to give a sort of sneak preview of some of the preliminary results of, of this study. So, anyone is welcome to, to come to that. We're actually very excited because this is our 17th annual Neuromusic Conference. So, when we started this 17 years ago, there weren't so many scientists interested in music. And now there are so many interested in music, so we, we have uh, you know much bigger turnout than, than we used to have. And during the day, it's this Saturday, November 20th, and during the day we have three really interesting keynote speakers. So Dr. Stephanie Ho from the University of Vienna is going to give uh, a talk on music in social interaction between parents and infants. And the synchrony that's important that music allows and how that affects development. And then our second speaker is Dr. Keith Dooling uh, from Paris, and he's going to be talking more about the brain and how rhythms are encoded in the, in the brain. And then our third speaker is Dr. Peter Keller, uh, who's actually, he was in Australia, he's just moved to the Max Planck Institute for Empirical Aesthetics in Frankfurt. And he's from sensory motor to social influences on rhythmic interpersonal coordination. So that's gonna be really interesting about how the auditory system uh, influences the motor system through rhythm and how that affects us socially. Uh, There'll be a poster session where you can see the most recent exciting uh, research projects at your leisure. And then, Perhaps most interesting, in the evening, we have anyone is welcome to come during the day as well. But in the evening, we have uh, Dr. Justin London who's going to talk about the coordination of music and dance. And he's going to give sort of a sneak preview of some early analyses of a study we've just done on music coordination, how music affects uh, coordination between dancers. Uh, a lovely dance choreographed by Dr. Henry Daniel. And it, it will be very exciting. You'll actually see the dance performance as well as uh, Dr. London's analysis of, of what's going on. Sort of access the whole thing uh, at www.neuromusic.ca. Uh, and from there, if you want uh, to register, you can register. Or you can and you can register for the whole thing or you can register if you want just for the evening. It's all free, but you do have to register. So hope to see you there. At the live lab, we're very interested in connecting with the community, so in particular the Hamilton and, and region community as well as you know around the world. Um, we hope that the live lab can serve. Uh, a function of helping to support, you know, a creative and and vibrant community that we can perhaps help musicians how to better hone their craft, understand how the audiences are reacting because we can measure how audiences are reacting to what they're doing um, and support in various ways. Also just providing a venue in which they can uh, perform. We're also interested in, in harnessing music to a greater extent in health. You know, so our research and that of others around the world is showing uh, more and more clearly how music can be used, uh, you know, in mental health, in, in motor disorders, in working with, um, you know, mothers with postpartum depression, students with, with, with mental health uh, issues, and so on. So we really want to promote, uh, to a greater extent, taking our basic research and using, using that in applications uh, in, in health. And then finally, I'd like to also talk about a little bit about music education, uh, because you know it's clear now that music education is important. It's not just a frill. And so we'd like our research to actually go out also into the community and supporting ventures uh, in creative ways of, of uh, using music in, in education. And maybe I'll just do a bit of a, a shout out to AFEC, An Instrument for Every Child, who, who we also work with, who do wonderful work, you know, bringing music um, to kids across Hamilton. Hamilton has always supported music. There are so many musicians who have come from Hamilton. And our orchestra, the, the Hamilton Philharmonic, is very interested in exploring connections between music and health. Uh, so Hamilton, I think is a natural place for us to have the live lab because of all these, these interconnections. Uh, so in fact, there's been a lot of local interest in the live lab, and this really helps us to do our research because we need to interact with musicians and study them and, uh, and so on in order to, to really accomplish what we want to do. And I'd also say, you know, Hamilton, uh, also faces some challenges. You know, there are mental health challenges here, challenges on welcoming immigrants and integrating them, challenges in Indigenous reconciliation. And music affects us emotionally and socially, and it's a big part of our cultures. And so I truly believe that music has the potential to contribute to solutions um, around these, these issues. And yeah, I might just note on that on that um, line of thinking. Uh, We are planning a study, we put in a grant, which hopefully we'll get, uh, working with um, Six Nations uh, to try to take children, put them together with children from Hamilton who are unfamiliar with their music and have their musicians lead workshops, uh, you know, for six or eight weeks, where all these kids learn together to play uh, some of the Indigenous music. You know, we think of music as a universal language, but in fact, it really isn't. Different musical cultures have very different rhythmic structures, tonal structures. And so if you just listen to music from another culture, you'll, you'll understand some aspects of it, but you won't understand everything about it. So the idea here is that if we can bring children together, so say children from Hamilton actually now understand at a deeper level, something about indigenous music and the, the place it plays in the culture and what it means then hopefully uh, this will lead to sort of gra- grassroots re- reconciliation, uh, you know, where we truly understand the other person, not just kind of play lip service to, yeah, we want to we wanna understand. Uh, so, so that's just one example, but I think that music really has the potential to offer creative solutions to a number of the problems that face Hamilton and, of course, many other areas. Thanks for listening. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. And please consider rating and reviewing as it helps others to find the show. For more information or to listen to past episodes, go to povhamilton.com.